minutes. Right, so yes, we are starting the book of Judges. Some of you know that I do like to preach from some of the darker corners of the Bible, the places where the cobwebs have maybe gathered and we're a little bit less sure of our step. And today we are starting in this series from the book of Judges, which does take us to some of those places. And sure, I'm, we are familiar with some of the content of this book, because some of it is suitable for Sunday school, Gideon and Samson and so forth. But there are many stories here where we fear to tread. There are words written down, which we would never say, have been kindly toned down for us by the translators. And there are acts of brutality, of sex, of violence, that any don't know exist within God's word. And it's a very difficult book, because it does chart this downward spiral of a nation into the deepest pits of depravity. And we think it starts bad, it actually starts pretty good, but it, during the book it gets worse, and at the end it is very, very bad indeed. And yet here we have it as part of God's word. People listed as heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, which we read not so long ago, make their appearances here. They're glimpses of light against the dark backdrop of humanity. It takes us to the depths of our humanity in order to show us the goodness of God, the glory of God, and his grace. And it sets the stage for showing us what we need, however much we might be in denial about that. Because however depressing the stories we're going to read over the next few weeks might be, the message it sets us up for is this, that God saves. And there is a way out of your pit. Now as it just said in that little introduction, that introduction was taken from a little series called, um, what's it called? What's in the Bible? Do you know what's in the Bible? What's in the Bible? Something like that. We used to watch it a lot when the children were really young. It's a great series. I don't, you can watch it on YouTube. We had it on DVD. If you ever want to know some basic Bible stuff, I really recommend this series, What's in the Bible. It's a very, very good introduction by the same guy that did um, Vegetables. And as I said, Judges comes after the book of Joshua. And it starts with his death. The people of God, Israel, were led out of slavery of Egypt by God and his servant Moses. They spent that 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Moses died, and then Joshua replaced him as the leader of the nation and led them over the river Jordan into the land of Canaan, into the promised land. The land that was promised to Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob and his 12 sons, the nation of Israel. And it's a unique invasion in the history of mankind, an invasion commanded by God to fulfill his promise to Abraham and his people. And it still affects our world today. It's part of the source of the trouble which we see in the Middle East in our current age. It's got a long history to it. And Judges then recounts this story of how Israel failed in obeying God's law and commandment to enter the land of Canaan, which becomes the land of Israel. And so I'm going to start chapter 1, verse 1, just the first couple of verses, if you've got it in front of you. It says there, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? You see, they've already entered the land in the book of jo uh, Joshua. There are places like Jericho that are defeated and so forth. They've entered the land, but that uh, entering needs to continue. It's unfinished. And so they're saying, who now will continue the fight against the Canaanites? And the Lord said, Judah, the tribe of Judah, shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his, into this tribe's hand. So under Joshua, the invasion of the land has been partial. The 12 tribes of Israel still have fully to enter in and take hold of this inheritance which God has given to them, the possession of the land. And so Judah continues 
the effort at the command of God. Verse 4. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the local inhabitants, into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek, king, at Bezek, and fought against him, and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. He said, I used to do this. I subdue people in this way. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. The book starts with this success. Judah defeat the Canaanites and Perizzites of Bezek, and they take their king, Adonai Bezek, into captivity. But there are already warning signs that things are not going as they should. This king has his thumbs and his big toes cut off. It sounds really odd. You think, why? Why did they do that? Did the Lord command it? Did we read that God commanded them to do it? And here we need to pause and consider what's actually a very important principle when we read the Bible, and especially in the book of Judges. Just because it's written down, and just because it's done maybe by the people of God, doesn't mean it's good, doesn't mean it's moral, doesn't mean that God commanded it. Most people will do read this story and assume that they cut off this king's thumbs and big toes because that's what God wanted them to do. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. What it does say is that this king has defeated over 70 other kings, or 70 other kings, and cut off their thumbs and their big toes. And what that tells us is, is that this method of punishment doesn't come from the Lord, it doesn't come from Yahweh, but it comes from the Canaanites. So when this king Adonai Bezek says, as I have done, so God has repaid me, he doesn't use the word for the Lord. He doesn't say the Lord has repaid me. He doesn't say Yahweh has repaid me. He says God, and it should be God with a small g, the generic word for a God. What he's effectively saying is it's karma. What goes around comes around. I did this, and now I'm the victim of it as well. This is the way we operated in the world. Now I'm the victim of that way of the world being. And this is important for two reasons. First, it's important because when we read Judges, we have to watch very, very carefully for what God actually commands and what people do of their own initiative. Do not assume because an Israelite does it that God commanded it or approved it or of it. And the second thing is it shows that the people of Israel are beginning to operate like Canaanites, which is fatal for them. You see this Adonai Bezek, this Canaanite king, cut off the thumbs and big toes of his enemies. Now Israel are doing the same thing to their enemies. And one of the main points of the book of Judges is that it shows the Canaanization of Israel. It's an important phrase to remember, the Canaanization of Israel. See, they are meant to enter the land to purify it because they have God's law. They have the presence of God with them. They have this Ark of the Covenant. They're going to establish a temple eventually, the place where God lives. They are to go into the land to purify it. They're meant to be completely separate from the peoples around them. And yet the book shows the opposite. Rather than the land being purified by the people of Israel, they themselves become infected by the people of the land. They become Canaanized. And so the phrase which we might want to hold in our heads whilst we read the book of Judges and think, what does this mean in our age in 2022, is this, the Canaanization of the church. This is what happened to them. In what way may it happen to us? In what ways may we be infected by the darkness of the world in which we live, rather than spreading light in that darkness? 
Verses 8 to 15 then start the book on a bit of a high. There are successes for Israel as they continue the conquering of the land of Canaan. But by the end of that section, the failures start to creep in. And we read this in verse 16. And the descendants of the Kenites, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. So these people, the Kenites, are related to Moses by marriage. They're his, well, his wife's family, but they're not Jews, they're not Israelites, they have not become part of the people of God. Yet they have come in with them to settle in the land with the people of Israel. And God has commanded there be no settling with such peoples, because that is settling with the devil. It's a compromise, and God is very clear there are to be no compromises. The people of the land of Canaan and around can join the people of God. They are very welcome to do that. And you see that happening in places like Rahab, who led the spies into the city of Jericho. And she and her family then join and become part of the people of God. You see it with someone like Caleb, who's one of the 12 spies who went into the land in the book of Numbers and spied it out and came back. And him and Judah were... Com- um, uh, Caleb and Joshua, yeah, sorry. Come back and they are commended for their faith. Caleb is not an Israelite by birth, by background. He's from another tribe, brought into the family of God. You see, in Othniel, he'll be the first judge. I don't know if we're preaching him or not, I can't remember, but he's the first judge in the book. Again, not a Jew, a child of Abraham by background, but welcomed in to the family of God. This happens. The, the Jews could welcome people in, but they could not intermingle with the people around. So that was intermingling with other gods. And so the failures begin to mount as the story develops, and Israel is unable to take hold of its inheritance. Each tribe then battles with a mixture of success and defeat as they lay hold of that which God has promised them. Verse 22 continues this theme. The house of Joseph, another tribe, also went up against Bethel to conquer it. And the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel, similar to what happened to Jericho in the previous book. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we'll deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man go, and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, and built a city, and called its name Luz. And again, it's another ominous sign. Unlike Rahab, who was welcomed in, and her family then submitted themselves to the God of Israel. This man wanders off and does his own thing and builds another city. The gods of Canaan then begin to coexist with the Lord in what is meant to be the Holy Land. And these failures have built up over time and the rest of the chapter describes this failure of Israel to take the land that was theirs by promise. So then, beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, someone comes to speak to the people, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal, this is God speaking himself to Bokim, and he, God said, I brought you up from Egypt, and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I will say, and so now I will say, I will not drive them out before you. And they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bokim, which means weepers. 
and they sacrifice there to the Lord. And this then is the foundation of what happens in the rest of the book. God's verdict is that the people have failed in keeping the covenant and they've made a covenant with other gods. They have accommodated themselves to that which is not holy, to that which is death, cut themselves off from the source of life. And the consequences of this are then illustrated in what happens in the rest of the book. Chapter 2 then continues by recounting again the death of Joshua in order to make a particular point. So chapter 2, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel in the Exodus when they came out from Egypt, the wilderness, entering into the promised land. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who didn't know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. The point is very simple, and that is that the people forgot. Another generation arises and they do not remember what their fathers knew. Another generation arises who didn't know the Lord or the work he'd done. And that's why history is so important. So I just called Jen Zai there. She's a history teacher. History is important. It's so important. We remember it. On Remembrance Day, don't we? We say, lest we forget. Lest we forget, because forgetting is dangerous. It's fatal. But it does run through our history as the people of God. We have a tendency to forget. And if you've got time this week, you might, this week, you might want to read Psalm 106 which is a very interesting reflection on that topic. Lest we forget. It continues, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, the gods of Canaan. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger, They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. It's another local god. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they didn't listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they didn't do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he didn't give them into the hand of Joshua. And these early chapters 
are setting up the pattern of judges, which will be repeated again and again and again in various levels of detail with each judge that we come across. First, the people forget God. Forgetting is fatal. Second, they then go after the other gods of the surrounding peoples. This is why they're described, the other peoples, as a thorn in Israel's side. Israel cannot resist the temptation when it coexists with these other gods. The people chase after the Baals. The Baals are the weather gods. They chase after the Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth is the goddess of war and of sex. Third, after they've abandoned God and gone to these other gods, because they've abandoned him, God gives Israel over to their desires. If you want to chase after the Baals and the Ashtaroth, you can. But that brings oppression from other nations. They are oppressed by those peoples. And the fourth stage is that this produces distress and the people cry out to God in their distress. And fifth, God answers that by providing a judge, a saviour, a person who will come and rescue his people. And things go well then. But six, when that judge dies, the people again forget and they return to the Baals and the Ashtaroth and the cycle happens all over again. And that's why it's called the downward spiral because each time it happens it gets worse. And the language is quite strong, and it's intentionally sexual in nature. The people are described as whoring after other gods and bowing down to them. That's the crux of the matter, really. And it's a very good lens through which to understand our relationship with God. We have to understand it in marital terms. I was listening uh, last week to a discussion, a very good one, between Jordan Peterson and two Catholic professors of philosophy from an American university. I can't remember which one. And one of the professors was explaining the gospel to Peterson, the fact that Jesus isn't just a moral pattern for us to follow, not just an example, but he's actually a saviour who saves us from our inevitable failure. And Peterson's response to this was to ask the question, in that case, why is it necessary for us to strive to be good? It's a common question people ask. If Jesus is going to save me from my failure anyway, then why do I need to strive to not fail? Why does it matter? It's a common question and the the professor answers with what I think is the perfect answer and he says for the same reason I strive to be a good husband striving to be good matters even if it's imperfect because when we love something we must act out of that love we must act in a certain way towards it otherwise we don't actually love it if I love my wife then I will strive to be a good husband not because I have to not because it's a burden not because it's you know That's the way things have to be, but because I love her, and that's what love is. If we love God, then we will act towards God in a certain way towards him, else we don't actually love him. See, God was provoked to anger and to pity by his people, not because he's an angry God, not because he's volatile, not because he's unstable, not because he's capricious, not because he's a hard taskmaster, but because he's a jilted husband. It's why adultery prostitution and idolatry are so closely linked in the bible idolatry is betrayal the people betray god in the same way i would betray my wife if i went to see a prostitute or commit adultery this is where people often get confused christian sexual ethics isn't about limiting freedom of expression it's not about limiting fun it's about bringing ourselves into our designed existence. Our monogamy in sex is a reflection of our monogamy of our union with our God. The two are very closely linked together. And the connection is explicit in the Bible. And so within the creation that God has designed, sex outside marriage cannot be loving to the other person in the same way that whoring after another God and bowing down to it cannot be loving towards 
our creator. That's the parallel. And sexual ethics is one of the ways in which maybe the church is being canonised in our present age. I don't know. But I'm going to read this quote from Carl Truman, which comes from over ten years ago, and a lot has happened in the arena of sex and sexual identity in the past decade, and I think some of what he prophesied is beginning to become true. He said this, The beautiful young things of the Reformed Renaissance have a hard choice to make in the next decade. You really do kid only yourselves if you think you can be an Orthodox Christian and be at the same time cool enough and hit enough to cut, hip enough to cut it in the wider world. Frankly, in a couple of years, it will not matter how much urban ink you sport, how much fair trade coffee you drink, how many craft brews you can name, how much urban gibberish you spout, how many art house movies you can find that Redeemer figure in, and how much money you divert from gospel preaching to social justice. Maintaining biblical sexual ethics will be the equivalent in our culture of being a white supremacist. And there's a lot that one might want to disagree with in what he said, but nevertheless the basic point still stands, is that our view on sex and sexual identity is becoming increasingly unpopular. I remember reading not long ago on the BBC, it was talking about politics in Spain. Sorry, I haven't scripted this, so I hope it's okay. But um, they, they were identifying a particular party in Spain which they identified as far-right. And the reason they gave them for being far-right is that they were uh, anti-abortion and did not, were not in favour of same-sex marriage. And I thought, well, I might find myself in that category, but that's the way the world sees me and us. In the book of Judges, God is not arbitrarily punishing sin. He's dealing with an unfaithful spouse, and he's doing so with grace and with patience. When the people suffer and turn back to God, is it out of love? Is it out of love that they turn back to God, or are they just running back to the family house again with all of its material benefits, but not actually wanting a restored relationship with the spouse that they abandoned? God is testing his people. Do they love him? Be like a billionaire looking for a marriage partner. Are they in it for the love or are they in it for the money? How could you know? <laughs> the introduction to Judges, which has set the pattern before we even meet the first judge, ends like this. Chapter 3, verses 5 to 6. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. And note again the sexual content of these concluding verses. There is an intermingling of the peoples, and it brings the enemy into their camp. I'm going to end with this. The messages of the book of Judges are many, and some of them are pretty subtle. But here are two to bear in mind as we embark on the rest of the book. One, God calls us to live in the world, but to not be of the world. I'm sure many of us are familiar with that. That's what Jesus says in the book of John. We have to ask ourselves difficult questions as to what that means in 2022. Back then, they literally went and bowed down before idols, and we don't do that anymore. I suggest our idols are more subtle and lie very close to home. Uh, In July 2012, Ross Douthat, who's a New York Times columnist, he's a Christian, wrote this in the New York Times editorial, that uh, the idols of our time might be the sexual revolution, consumerism, materialism, multiculturalism, and relativism. You can get lost in the isms there, but the point is this, that we can take it for granted that we can do whatever we want to do because we think we're reasonable and good people, because bad people are other people. 
And that can often happen without us really asking, is that what our creator thinks? Later on in Judges, the refrain will be this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sort of the concluding refrain. Our idols are often what is right in our own eyes and not in our king's. And the second message is this. God saves. God saves. He really does save. With every generation, he is jilted afresh, and yet he is faithful, and he is gracious, and no matter how bad it gets, and it gets very bad, God saves his people. If there's this turning, this turning, it's like the prodigal son, isn't it? Running back. And God says, yes, I will save you. I welcome you with open arms. You can't fall beyond the grasp of God. Alan read those amazing words from Romans chapter 8 to start our worship with. I can't remember them off by heart, but many of us will know them. It doesn't matter where you are, God saves.